Hello and welcome. Thank you all for joining me this week. I'm David Widmark, co-founder of Agricultural Economic Insights, AEI Premium. And it's August the 5th, we're recording this. It's about a week ahead of the USDA's August WASDE report that comes out on Friday, August the 12th. That's going to be a really important report. And the reason is that we start to see big yield changes. Now, the USDA can change the yields before August. Of course, in 2012, they made big changes in July. This year, they made some revisions in May due to the slow planting conditions for corn. But August starts to really kick off yield season, quote unquote, because it is when the USDA starts to collect data. And so this month's data will be primarily that producer survey. So they're going to go out and they're going to survey producers. They're going to ask some questions about, you know, what folks are seeing, and they're going to put that in a model, and they're going to be able to make some yield estimates. Now, as we write about every year, there's a lot of things can change from August through to the final. And even last year, the USD had a pretty low August estimate, and they walked it up from there. But it's an important one. We're going to really get into this growing season, this yield estimate. Starting in September, they actually start to do the objective yield survey. They actually do some measuring. And so they count stocks and ears and the size of the ears or the weight of the ears. And so we're getting into this. And so I want to remind you to update your forecast within the forecast network, of course, because of the yield contest. But also just to give you a little bit of a heads up that this is what's going to go on. This is why it's always a bit of an interesting year, so to speak. want to spend just a couple minutes today sharing with you some ideas that we captured as we were writing this week and generating some ideas for content. Without a trade war, without the phase one trade agreement sort of taking up the attention economy bandwidth, there is not a lot been talked about with respect to China's annual purchases. But when we dug in through the first five months of data, we found that China's actually on pace to do another record year. So through May, it's been the fastest number of purchases through May. They crossed 15 billion. For context, they purchased about a billion and a half less last year through the first five months. And for the entire calendar year during the trade war in 2018, they purchased about 13 billion in 2019, about 16 billion. So, you know, we have about an entire trade war year worth of purchases in five months. And this is the fastest five months. How fast is that pace? Well, if we look at seasonal trends and seasonality, and we look at the first five months and we project out, it's about a $40 billion pace. That's significant because last year's pace was, the total was somewhere around $36 billion. And the previous record had been $29 billion. And so we got close to that in 2019, but also we hit the high back in 2013. So on pace for some big purchases coming out of China. What's driving those purchases? Well, soybeans have historically been half, the other half are non-soybeans. Soybean purchases on a dollar basis are up. So are the non-soybean purchases. So we dug even deeper. As we've talked about before, corn and beef has been the biggest source of improvements year over year over the last few years. So when we looked at the quantity purchase, not dollars, but quantity, because some of this is due to higher quantity values, when we looked at quantity purchase, soybeans hasn't really seen much of an uptick through 2022. There just hasn't been a lot of growth the last year. It's been pretty consistent. We got back to pre-trade war levels, but we haven't seen growth in soybean purchases. What's been going on with corn? Well, corn's been keeping up with 2021 pace. That's kind of an amazing headline in and of itself. 
So soybeans are disappointed that they're not growing, but corn's impressive that it hasn't backed off. Why? Because China is just buying an absolute unbelievable amount of corn given their historic activity. But when we switch to beef, the real story here has been with beef. They bought almost 100 million metric tons through the first five months of the year. Prior to 2020, they basically didn't buy anything. In fact, there was a 12-year ban on U.S. beef purchases that really started in the Mad Cow outbreak ended in 2016. And finally, they started you know, exercising that there around 2020. What's most significant is that the beef purchases on a quantity basis are about 55% above a year ago. So not only are they purchasing a lot relative to historic, they're purchasing a lot year over year. So you kind of have to wonder how many years of growth that could be sustained. It's just kind of an amazing story. And we're going to keep our eye on it. We're going to keep developing it. Two things that we're going to look at in future articles, kind of peering behind the curtain a little bit of the research. How much of the China purchases of corn and beef are new versus displaced? And how much of the new purchases coming to the US is displacing other countries versus new demand. So what does that mean? Well, is China buying more in of themselves or are they just replacing, reshuffling the deck chairs, so to speak? Secondly, is China's activity within the US, is the US exporting more or are we just trading trade partners? You know, there's a scenario here where it's all new. There's a scenario where it's all rearrangement. We want to dig into that. We want to understand that just in a little more context. Switching gears, The second piece here is an article that Brent and I worked on, uh, what we're thinking about memo. I think this is a really important, it's a bit academic, I will admit, exercise. But there are two pain points that almost every decision maker in the business world is facing with respect to the economy. And it's going largely unspoken. The first one is relative prices. What are relative prices? Well, We've seen this in agriculture with respect to fertilizer, right? It's in hydrous ammonia prices versus urea prices. It's in prices relative to corn prices. It's corn prices relative to rent. It's rent prices relative to farmland values. These are all examples of relative prices. And so a year ago, we came across an article the author very vividly shared about how in the early 80s, his PhD level economics professor came in and shouted, The problem with inflation is that it messes up relative prices. And he used a much more colorful adjective, but it messed up relative prices. And that's really important to keep in mind. And I shared a story about this hunting dog where this person, you have to read the story for the real effect. This person wanted to sell a hunting dog for $50,000. No one said it was, you know, no, it wasn't worth that much. No one was going to buy it. But a few weeks later, it came out that the person had sold this hunting dog. So the friend stopped by to kind of learn more about this, you know, how he got $50,000 for this hunting dog. He said, what'd you get for the dog? He said, I got $50,000 for him. Keeps conversation going. And a few minutes later, these cats walk across. And the guy says, when did you become a cat person? He goes, oh, I I traded that dog for these cats. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, well, haven't you seen a pair of $25,000 kittens? And the idea here is that the dog wasn't worth $50,000 and those two cats weren't worth $25,000 each. But the relative prices were probably accurate, right? One hunting dog for two special kittens. The dollar amounts were irrelevant. And so this is what we got to keep up with relative prices. If everything in the economy went up by a 10x or 20x, 
everything from the prices that you paid, the income you received, or the value of cash that you had in your checking account, it would create some sticker shock, but ultimately everything would work out okay. What makes things so complicated though is the relative prices. So if you have fixed income, you have a set amount of money in the bank and everything's changing the economy around you, that's painful. But back to the decision makers, it's the relative prices of things that we are buying and the prices of things, the value of things that we're selling. This is really getting screwed up. And you see a lot of decisions being made about how do I make these decisions based on these relative prices changing and they're changing very quickly. Going back to fertilizer, we noted that anhydrous ammonia was a bargain last fall and urea and 28% are now the bargain. In fact, urea is almost at a one-to-one to anhydrous ammonia, which is historically low. The takeaway here is that the relative prices have swung from extreme to extreme and they did it in a very short period of time. That's what makes a lot of this challenging for decision makers. Uh, we even saw this a little bit with corn and soybean price ratios. They've been kind of all over the place the last 18 months. The second challenge that we're facing in the global economy is elasticity, elasticity of supply, elasticity of demand. And the idea here is how much of a change in price does it take to get a change in quantity, whether it's quantity demanded or what people are buying, but also quantity supplied. Uh, things that are generally inelastic means they don't respond very much. So it takes a big price change to get new acres brought into production around the world for agricultural products. It takes a big price response to get new oil wells drilled. It takes a big price change on the quantity demanded with respect to quantity demanded to get consumers to use less oil, less gasoline, or to use less food as a whole. And so we are seeing a lot of goods and services that are inelastic really being hit hard by these global supply shocks. Now, we might see some goods that are elastic get hit, but those are going to resolve themselves pretty quickly. So one thing for decision makers to keep in mind is really be careful about these elasticities. We don't want to create big investments for things that could resolve themselves in a relatively quickly fashion. For example, we don't want to, you know, go out and make a bunch of investments to plant wheat in 2022 in the fall that requires us to have a payback for multiple years before it makes sense to add that new drill or add that new harvester. We can still take advantage of that, but we might not want to scale that to some degree that takes multiple years again to recoup any additional investments. So really think about the decisions that you're making in 2022 or 2023 how much of these are being driven by relative prices? How much of these are being driven by elasticity factors? They're frustrating, they're challenging, but keep in mind that some of these will resolve themselves quickly and some of them uh, honestly won't. And I, I guess we wrap this article up by saying we don't expect that energy or agricultural prices will remain high forever. Eventually, consumers will adjust behavior, suppliers will adjust means of production to expand. But that's in the long run. And as John Maynard Keyes reminds us, in the long run, we're all dead. So always keep in mind the time frame. The time frame is what's tricky oftentimes to navigate this. Again, we're going to wrap this up. Update your forecast network expectations around the yields. We have a lot of other questions in there as well, especially around inflation. Boy, it's been a hard one to nail down. It seems like every month the data just keep creeping up higher and higher. So make sure your forecasts are up to date on that. Again, I'm David. That's all I have for this week. In the meantime, stay curious. Stay curious.